if somebody I admired said they liked something, yeah, I wouldn't look at it through my eyes. I try and see it through their eyes. Yeah. What do they like about this? Yeah. What am I missing here? Yep. And not enough people do that. They think they're right. And that stops them from learning instead of going, what if I'm wrong here? On this week's episode of You Are a Storyteller, we conclude our two-part series where Brian McDonald and Jesse Bryan discuss Brian's influences and the importance of mentorship. The next guy, I'm really excited to talk about this because I'd love to hear you kind of crystallize some of this stuff for me. You were like a Rod Serling fanatic. I am. You have in your office, you have like a giant, it's Billy Wilder, it's Rod Serling, and it's uh, Schindler's List. List. Yeah. But the Rod one is like by your desk and it's huge. Massive. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and uh, you love Rod Serling. Like, I, I do. Why? How did you learn about that there was a guy named Rod Serling? I don't know. I, I can tell you this. So Planet of the Apes, that film was a big influence on me. Um, one of the biggest influences on me as, as a movie, um, that first Planet of the Apes movie was like, if it was on TV, I was watching it. That's all there was to it. There's no two ways about it. I never missed it. Uh, I learned a ton from it. It's one of the first scripts I, if I could get when I got a hold of it, I was like, I read it incessantly. Um, but I didn't know when I was watching Planet of the Apes, that there was such a guy as Rod Serling. I didn't yeah, know that yeah. yet. It was a movie. You weren't going, oh, there's a person behind this? Um, Didn't your dad like that movie too? My dad loved Planet of the Apes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. I remember him talking about that movie. Yeah. Um, they smoke. That was his big thing. They smoke cigars. <laughs> he, was, he was amazed. Um, uh, you know, and it's hard for pe- people to understand now, but those effects were amazing to people yeah. at that moment. Amazing. As amazing. I don't know. We're so used to seeing effects now. Yeah, we can't really quite, but it was amazing to people, and I, I remember that. I was really young when the first movie came out. Uh, I think I saw the third one in the theater. I always remembered it was the first one, but when I think about it, I go, "No, I think I saw the third one in the theater." Hmm. Um, and, but it, the third one is not as good. Yeah, as the first one. As sure. the first yeah. one. The first one's amazing. And, so that made an impact on you. But oh, when did man. you learn about this dude, Rod? Well, then, then the Twilight Zone was not in reruns, or at least it, I didn't see it until I was a little older. So I was probably 11 or 12 or something like that when the Twilight Zone started being rerun uh, where I could see it yeah, or pay attention to it or whatever. But that's when I started watching it. It's like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever yeah. seen. Talk about the coolest dude. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like in the Twilight Zones, when he shows up and he's standing there, you're like, that's the coolest dude. And his voice, you know? He's the coolest guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and which nobody thought at the time in real life, you know, that he was the coolest guy. He's like, it's weird. I mean, he thought it was weird that people thought he was so cool and that he was tall because he was a pretty short guy. Uh-huh. Uh, but but he is cool. But they didn't want him to host it or be the they tried every they were like maybe Orson Welles or you know they didn't think he was the guy for it they thought it was laughable really Rod Rod <laughs> yeah. but yeah you look at him now you go he's the smooth... how are you gonna find a better yeah, yeah he's <laughs> yeah. the coolest guy <laughs> yeah always smoking yeah uh-huh. you know which probably killed him but yeah you sure. know. yeah but uh but it looks cool yeah he looks <laughs> he's <laughs> he the looks, coolest looking yeah. dude um but uh so yeah so then so 11 or 12 uh yeah something like Twilight that. Zone and then I became obsessed with that show why um I think initially it had a lot to do with the endings, the twist endings, because um, that's something that when you're learning how to write is easy to see. Huh. Right. So so 
that's the first thing I could see that I noticed. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Look at this. Would you call those twist endings? No, but that's... Oh, got it. Yeah, yeah. I got what you're saying. I was like, I don't... Yeah. No, no, no. They're not twist endings, but it's kind of known for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the same like way. Like Planet of the Apes. Planet, right. Twist endings. Like, no, it's the it's, right ending. Yeah. Right. But you know what I mean. Yeah, sure, sure. Surprise ending yeah, right. in some way. Sometimes they're not surprises, but you know what I mean. Yeah. So uh, I think that was the first thing I noticed. And so that was the first thing I learned how to imitate as a writer. Mm-hmm. Like, I can do that, like... But I'm not impressed with it anymore. <laughs> like yeah. it's the first thing I knew, learned how to do. So I'm not impressed. Right. It's a trick. Yeah. Um, so people do it, but they're not Rod Serling. When other people do it, they're not Rod Serling. The reason it works when Rod Serling did it is because he always had a point, and that yeah. was always the sort of button on the point yep. he had been making the whole time. Yep. Right. And so his twist endings or surprise endings work better than most because there's more going on there. It's, than the trick. Yep. Which is why you can rewatch them. If you've well, seen it's like them. the glasses episode. What's that called? Um that one's called uh Time Enough at Last. Yeah. I guess you could say it's a tw- you know it's like, well, you know, at the end you're like, no, but that's such a killer perfect ending. Yeah. Yeah. So why was why was the Twilight Zone important to him? Uh because he wanted to talk he wanted to talk about um real things he had been working in live television drama uh same as reginald rose who did 12 angry men and patty Javsky, who did marty and um he had been working in live tv and they liked talking about real things um certainly reginald rose and uh, rod serling did mm-hmm. uh like real political things yeah 12 angry men's no joke it is not a joke it is not a joke. Uh, Imagine trying to write that. I don't even know how. Yeah, yeah. Twelve Angry Men. Twelve Angry Men is amazing. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so. So uh, he was of that time. Yeah, he was of that time and of that group. GIs each other. came back. Yeah. Right. So um, yeah, so he wanted to write like in '55. There was a very famous lynching, the lynching of Emmett Till, and it became a big story and and. Rod Serling wanted to write about it, but he wasn't really allowed to because it's, oh, we, we're upset the Southern market. And, you know, and he just found he couldn't talk about real things. And so he thought that if he did the Twilight Zone, he could talk about real things, but sort of disguise them. And so the Twilight Zone was a way for him to talk about things he thought were important to talk about in a way that would get past all of the censorship. So smart. It's very smart. Yeah, very smart. So, and then he cared that much. Yeah. It wasn't. I got an idea for a hit show. It was no, I got to I want to find a way to be able to talk about the things I want to talk about. Yeah. And it also happened to make for a killer show. Yeah. Right? You know what I mean? Like that still we talk about. Well, it's yeah, you can't. You know, what's interesting is that every now and then somebody will come along and somebody will say that person's the new Rod Serling or this is the new Twilight Zone. And it's never true. And the reason it's never true is because when something new happens, People don't compare it to other things, right? So somebody comes along and they say, they're the next Beatles. No, they're not. Right. They never are, yeah. right? They're going to be the first whoever they are. Yeah, right? sure. So the next Twilight Zone, no, it's not. You wouldn't care. You wouldn't use the Twilight Zone as a marker. You would be like, it's its own thing. Sure. And so when did you start to go, this is special? Like this guy, you know is kind of a different league just because i know out of all you have a lot of people that you respect him but like rod is such a big deal like what did you learn from him that set you kind of on this journey uh well yeah he taught me how to write so 
In what way? He, he, what I learned from watching him over and studying him was that everything mattered and to have a point. So when I talk about armature or any of that stuff, that's stuff I learned from watching his work Hmm. and studying his work, that he had a point and everything in the story was there to help make that point. Yep. To help dramatize that point, that idea. Everything matters. Everything matters. And I, and that I learned um, I was young when I was learning it, so it was sort of instinctual. I learned it consciously later from other things, but I learned it subconsciously. Like, I didn't even know I was good at that stuff. I was writing with somebody, and they said, well, you're really good at theme and how themes work, and I had no idea I was good at that. Um, they, somebody else told me I was good at it. But you were... I had internalized it. So obsessed with his stuff, it, it obviously made a huge impact. It made a huge, a huge impact, and then... There were other people like Larry Gelbart who uh, created MASH for TV. Yeah. That he was the first guy I went, oh, you don't have to have a twist ending. You can still have a good story. Right. <laughs> right? You know, and so I learned that from uh, Larry Gelbart and the people who uh, wrote MASH. Yeah, MASH is insane. It, MASH is amazing. MASH is amazing. If you People dismiss it now because there's a laugh track on it. Um, and I have a whole theory about laugh tracks on it. You know, but... Um, but that was the time that it was made and yeah. all of that. But if you take if you took that laugh track out, it'd be better than any show that you could see now. Oh, I told you that was a show that my grandma, when I was a kid, whenever bedtime was, 8 o'clock. MASH came on. Whatever nights came on, she would let me stay up and watch MASH with her. Yeah. And even as a kid, I remember that show just being like, this is really good. It's a good show. And I was like, you know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. It's... Um, but with Rod, like, was there anything that crystallized for you, any other things he taught you, writing or as a person or even life that? Um, he, well, he was one of those people who seemed to care about people. Now, somebody, somebody wrote a review. They hadn't watched. They started watching Twilight Zone and they got like, that guy really had, didn't like people or something about Rod Serling, which isn't true. And doesn't appear to be true to me and and isn't true wasn't true of him um i think he liked people a lot i think he was disappointed in humanity right um and i think disappointment comes from knowing you can do better you can do better than this right (laughs) you know what i mean yeah so i think he he because he thought we could be better he held us to a high standard and so he can be judgmental but i don't think he I think he loved individual people and loved um, what could be good about people. And he write, he wrote about that. He wrote stuff that, that shows that. Um, and even the stuff that's, you know what? He, he didn't usually write about how bad humanity was. He, he would show you what it was to be a bad human being. Don't be this guy. Yeah. Right? You know what I mean? Don't be this guy. Often he would have a counterpoint. So there would be somebody who was not that guy who would be like, dude, really, don't be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. So um, it wasn't like, I think now they just have the bad guy. <laughs> right. And there's no counterpoint. Yeah. You know? But he would often, more times than not, there would be a counterpoint, right? So you'd have the astronauts who, in the middle of the desert. Yep. Right. Yeah. And one guy was a jerk. Right. 
Yeah. You know, and everybody's like, you're a jerk. <laughs> you yeah, know? sure. You know? Yeah. Um, and so I think he was just always saying, don't be this guy or be this better version. Be a good person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, and I think that's the way he he lived his life and that's the way he felt about things. And I don't know exactly where that came from in his life. Um, but he seemed to be a really fair minded human being who um, he hated. He hated prejudice. He hated it. And yeah. uh, he really hated it. And it wasn't like the fashion or. It's yeah, cool no, to... no. It would have been a very unpopular time. Yeah. The fact that Rod Serling was as outspoken as he was is kind of crazy. Yeah, he really was. That, he was like, he gave that speech at like Berkeley or UCLA. Mm-hmm. Man, he didn't hold back on anything. No, he didn't hold back on things. He, um, he no. seemed very like a very principled person. I believe, and he had that. the work to back it up. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think he was. I think he was. Um, I think that something. I don't know who he was before World War II. I think he was a good dude before. I don't think the war made him a good dude, but I think the war gave him a sense of responsibility. And uh, I think he came back after having seen the worst of humanity and what we could be, um, wanting to say, again, what we could be better, that we could do better. Um, And so he often tried to show us the best of what we could be or... um, sometimes show us warn us i think um, yeah consequences yeah i think that planet of the apes is a really great mm-hmm. warning right where he talks about how um that our intelligence and our idiocy walk hand in hand right he talks about dr zayas has a line something like that where how can we be so smart and so stupid at the same time how can we be so self-destructive how can we you yeah. know like we're smart why are we doing this you know always asking how can we be both these things? How can we destroy the planet and be these really great, you know, smart animals? Yeah. So much potential. Yeah. So I see that. I see just a lot of humanity in his work. Um, and the fact that Stuart Stern liked him, that makes him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but Stuart, he was very, they were very similar, I think. I think Stuart was a little bit more wore his heart on his sleeve in a different way. But same thing, come back from war. That word um, you used a second ago, responsibility, I think is really interesting about that generation. Yeah, I think they felt that. I think they felt that. His opinions, right, didn't help it, couldn't have helped his career. No. No. (laughs) I mean, come on. No, he would speak out about against Vietnam and stuff like that. You know, prejudice, it's such a, um, a consistent message. Oh, yeah, it's in a lot of his work. And apparently, when he was in um, college, um, the, the town where he was going to college, uh, they, uh, there, there was only one barber and one grocery store that would serve black people. And if he had heard that you went to one of the other stores that didn't serve black people or got your hair cut at a barber that didn't serve black people, he would come and chew you a new one. Like, when he was in college, really? yeah. Like, he would get really mad, livid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a fascinating guy. Yeah. And his last interview that he gave, um, he talks about somebody sent him a pamphlet or something for some white supremacist group or something. And he's just like, I'm not a violent person, but I just want to go down there and shoot them all. <laughs> like, like, yeah. He really, it was a visceral thing with him. Yeah. It was a real thing. It wasn't fashion. It wasn't because it was cool. It wasn't. Yeah. Be- it was a real thing that was deep inside of him for some reason. To the point where. 
he figures out because he's so obviously a smart dude i'm gonna invent a show that allows me to actually talk about some stuff yeah again the point having a point having a point that's how you make a classic how you make a hit i don't know right how do you make a classic have something to say have something worthwhile to say and say it well well just like you said a minute ago throw both out a cause yeah how do you make a classic have something to say yep right these kids are not aliens they're human beings they're our kids what do we do how do we how do we um how do we create this mess it's really as an adult is what he was asking i think yeah he was an amazing dude um i'm gonna ask you about another guy that you're obsessed with okay um, obviously you haven't gotten to meet talking about Billy Wilder. I did try to meet Billy Wilder once. You, yeah, you, you went to his office. I right? went to his office with my friend Chris and we sat there and he used to go to his office every day. He was very old at the time and he used to go to his office every day, Billy Wilder, but, uh, he didn't show up that day. He was slowing down. He was, so he didn't show up. We waited and waited and waited and peeked through his mail slot, but we never saw him. Um, we did talk to his neighbors. They were very nice. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, Billy comes in. But, you know, he just wasn't there that day. Yeah. Um, what so. was it about Billy Wilder? Well, I think. I don't think anybody did the job of writing and directing as well as he did both those things. Right, mm-hmm. you could point to a director. You could point to Michael Curtiz or, or Ford or somebody. somebody yeah, yeah, right. But those people didn't write. Yeah, uh, Billy Wilder was a storyteller all the way through. Yeah, um, and so he even said to his writing partners that we are directing here. Like, so he never he, like you were also directing. We're directing on the page. So mm-hmm. for him, it was all the same job. Well, that's funny because like I was reading your new show and like I said, it was like, man, it's so clear. You're 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 dictating how it's going to be shot without saying anything. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it, so I can see you directing without no camera movements. None of that stuff's in your scripts. Right. But it's like you kind of are tying the hands of whoever. Right? So yeah. If you're not directing it, whoever does is pretty much going to have to direct it the way you <laughs> wrote it. Right. So that's interesting. So he said writing was directing also. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so uh, so I think he he just he had a sense. He was just a storyteller. It happened to be on film, but he was a storyteller, and um, so he didn't see a distinction between the two jobs. And I, there's something about that that comes across in his work. His work is unbelievably focused. It always knows what it's about. Mm-hmm. Again, he, you come back to about. Yeah, what's it about? He never wasted anything. Right. So he like he said, um, there are no phony shots in my movies, meaning I didn't just do things to do them. They were all going smart. back to what Bruce talked about and yeah. what Picasso, right. Yeah. All these guys. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he was not trying to be noticed. He was trying to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll notice if you watch Billy Wilder movies, there's always a gag that goes all the way through. Like in Double Indemnity, um, uh, there's a guy who never has matches. Right. <laughs> right. Yep. Right. Um, and. It's like he never wastes anything. So everything comes back. Yeah. Everything, you know, or one of the things I, I love about his his sort of secondary characters that maybe don't have, uh, they maybe they have a couple of lines. They're always fully realized human beings. Hmm. So like there's a, there's a maid in Double Indemnity. I don't know how many lines she has, not very many. And uh, the, the Walter Neff, the insurance guy, comes to the door uh-huh. 
and uh, and uh, he says uh, she says, oh, wait in this other room while I get the, you know, the lady of the house or whatever she says. And uh, he says she says, just go in there. And then she says they keep the liquor locked up. Right. Uh, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And the way she says that, like, I got you. I, you know, yeah, I could see it. I see what, who you are. Uh -huh. But she doesn't have a lot of lines. But she's a real person with a real perspective yep. and point of view, and she only has just a few lines. Yeah. Um, and he does that. He does stuff like that in A Foreign Affair. There's these two characters that come in to arrest this woman, and just their their the their interaction with her. It's like these are real guys who I always think. Here's what I think when I when I write a character or when I see a character. If I can imagine their life off screen. Uh -huh. then that's a fully realized character, hmm. right? Like, oh, can I imagine that person having a beer when the movie's not happening? Yeah. Yes, I can. Yeah. Right? yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Max from Sunset Boulevard. Right. Yeah. That dude is a fully formed character. <laughs> yeah. One of the best. Yeah, he is. Some of these movies, I feel like because you've seen their poster so many times, you go, yeah, yeah, yeah I've seen the poster. It's like Sunset Boulevard is so good. Like, the more you learn about it, the more you just want to, you know, just walk away. Just walk away from it. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of crazy. It's very good. Yeah. I, You know, like, it's, you just watch it. We were, I remember what we were watching. We were watching some movie at the house. We were like, we just would look at it. we look at each other and be like, oh, my God, I don't even know how to. Because it's so good. You're Was like. Godfather? I think we are watching Godfather. We were watching Godfather. And we'd be like, yeah, I don't. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how. I don't know how he. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just, and also his range, man. Yeah. He well because he was a storyteller. He didn't. Well, I don't really understand. You know me. I don't understand. I don't understand genres, right? So I don't understand people who think in terms of genre. Yeah. That seems like a marketing thing, not a creative thing yeah. to me. Right. So, um, Billy Wilder. Genre didn't mean anything to him either. I mean, he didn't make any westerns, but he could have, sure. right? Right. Um, but you know, he has noir stuff, and he has yeah. Sabrina, romantic comedy yeah. stuff like The Apartment. Like he's all over the place. Comedies, yeah. dramas. Like none of it made any difference to him. Yeah. In fact, he said that if I show the movie and people laugh, I call it a comedy. Like he, to for him. <laughs> of course, he said that. Right, because for him, it was like it's all the same job. Some things are a little yeah. bit more serious. And if you look at his serious stuff, there's jokes in it. You sure. You look at his yeah. jokey stuff that gets very serious. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Some Like It Hot doesn't have anything serious in it. but everything. Some Like It Hot. <laughs> like, this is the same thing. Yeah. Some Like It Hot. Yeah. Some Like It It doesn't get enough credit. No, it's true. Some Like It Hot is still so damn funny. It's hilarious. And it pays off. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, Some Like It Hot is another one of those where it's like, it might be one of those you haven't actually taken the time to watch because you're like, oh, I've seen that poster. I want to. It's like, watch it. Yeah. Yeah. What did he teach you? Like, I, because you're, you know, you've got a couple of people kind of high up on your shelf. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, why is Billy up there? He's up there because he, not only was he good, but he was consistent over time. And that tells me, like Hitchcock, that tells me that he knew what he was doing, that it mm -hmm. wasn't a mistake or a whim or a, you know, the fluky thing like, oh, the, the, the market was this and he happened to have the voice of the time right. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, he he was uh, writing, um, you know, in the 30s, writing hit movies in the 30s. Yeah. And he was making good movies into the 60s, you know, um, 
he he knew what he was doing and i i like the idea of being able to get consistent results right that it's not a fluke yeah it's not an accident um and that you can do it with it's proof that the craft can can carry you that the craft can Mm. give you longevity that the craft won't let you down right and he's such a craftsperson yeah you know he he's you know it's funny because people talk about three-act structure and they don't believe it or they don't think you should whatever well billy wilder talked about three-act structure right he's the one who said if there's a problem in the third act it's probably a problem in the first act right right so he thought about you three either act. listen to that and go oh or you look at it and they go like nah he's wrong okay well if billy's wrong <laughs> yeah what does that mean yeah i don't pretend to be smarter than billy wilder so if he said to do it i'll just do that right anton Chekhov said the same you know so it's like look <laughs> These guys are smarter than me. Uh-huh. I just listen to them. So I'm not sure why people don't do that. I think people have to spike yeah. a flag and feel smarter uh-huh. on their own. But I... Most shortcuts are not good. Right. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. That's a good shortcut. Yeah. Who yeah. said it? Oh, all, right, all right. Well, I'm not going to argue with that. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, consistent over time. Yeah. Classics. Yep. Hits and classics. Yep. Right? Um, Hitchcock, too. And they all have these rules that they, these principles that they followed. Yeah, I also liked the guts he had. You know what I mean? Like, you hear some of those stories about where he'd give somebody a piece of his mind. And, you oh, know yeah. what I mean? Like, I like, I just like that he doesn't, he didn't take any shit. Like, he, when he was doing Stalag 17, so Stalag 17 is a POW camp, right? Mm-hmm. So, Americans and a, and a prisoner of war camp in Germany, World War II. Movie, the movie was done in the 50s, but it's about World War II. And the Paramount, he'd now, this was uh, in the 50s. Billy Wilder had worked at Paramount since the 30s. So he's making this movie, and they said, uh, we don't want these guys to be German, the, the bad guys, because that's a big market for us. So can you do something else? Can they be something? Can they be Polish? Can they be whatever uh-huh. they said? And he said, I, I, maybe it was Polish, whatever it was. Yeah. They said they didn't want them to be German. And he said, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, we yeah. don't want it to be German. I don't think it was Polish. It was something else. And uh, he said, you know, because his family died at Auschwitz. Billy Wilder's family died at Auschwitz. Yeah. And he goes, how dare you? Right. How dare you tell me that I can't make these guys German? Yeah. And uh, he left Paramount. He had a contract. I think he had to do two other movies with them, but he left. He's like, I'm not going to work with these people. Yeah. Like, he's princi- he's a principled guy. I love that and stuff. Yeah. His, you know, his family died at Auschwitz, and he's like, I'm not taking this. Yeah. Good yeah. for him. Yeah. Think about the pressure he would have been under. Nope, he walks. He walked. Uh, a big theme, a lot of his films are, a lot of them seem to point towards pretty much like, don't sell your soul. Right. Yeah. You know, in yeah. one way or another. And. Uh, yeah, the apartment has that. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I, I appreciate that he lived that out for himself. He did, yeah. You know, did. People there's said, that story, and I bet we can find it and link to it, of him going um, through the immigration office. Oh, right. Yes. It is one of the most incredible mm-hmm. stories. I remember the first time I saw him, it was an award show or something. He told the story, and I got choked up. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll link to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but talk about we were this close to losing Billy Wilder yeah. before he even got started. Yeah. We'll link to it. It's an incredible guy. Incredible person. Yeah. And obviously his body of work speaks for itself. Yeah, he was he was amazing. So I, I just think, you know, everybody, pretty much anybody who studies this 
for any amount of time will come around, circle around to Billy Wilder. I, th I think you can't help it. I think he was just so good at it that you can't help it. Yeah. You have to get there. You have to, you know what I mean? It's like you can you can be a saxophone player and and uh, not look at, at John Coltrane, but eventually. Yeah. <laughs> right? If you want to keep getting better. Yeah. Eventually, that's where you're going to go. You can't help it. Right. There's going to be certain people, maybe in every field. Right. Every craft where you yeah. like, oh, you're going to study architecture. Sooner or later, you're going to get to. Yeah. Frank Lloyd Wright or something. Yeah. Whoever. Sullivan yeah. Or whoever, yeah. Right. You know. Yeah. You can't not yeah that's just the way it is some people are that good at the craft or they've taken enough in from enough other people who were good at the craft and, yeah and um found a way to utilize it and crystallize it in yeah. their own work yeah um B billy wilder's idol was ernst lubitsch right right so, right i don't know who ernst lubitsch's sure idol was right Okay, um, another one we're going to link to is him explaining why Lubitsch was so good. Oh, yeah, sure. That's a great clip, yeah. too, because Billy, I love that Billy gives so much credit to him. Yeah. You know, because he didn't have, I mean, he's Billy Wilder, but yeah. he's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. You want to know who's really good? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's just always fun to go like, oh, this person's amazing. Well, now figure out who their hero was. Well, now figure out who their hero was. And when Billy Wilder explains while he, why he was so good, it's like, oh, my God. And you can see Billy's style. Oh, yeah. All over that. You know, I I wish there was more stuff of people talking about why they like the people they like. Like, there's an interesting thing where, because sometimes you, there's too much distance, right? So that if you don't know what to look for when you watch Charlie Chaplin, yeah, then you don't know what you're looking at, right? So somebody shouldn't just say to you, watch Charlie Chaplin. They should tell you why. Because when you're on the other end of history when the stuff feels cliche because everybody's ripped it off or right. whatever, you can't see, uh, you can't see it clearly. Just like Picasso. Right. So you have to find a way to, to see it clearly. And I think that people who are, uh, of an older generation, I like, I, sometimes I wonder, I'm like, you know, people will watch, like I, somebody just told me they watched Tootsie and they were like, Oh, my wife didn't like Tootsie. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Now, Tootsie is so well-written yeah. and so well-constructed that every screenwriting book since it's come out has mentioned it. I even mentioned it, and I tried not to. Yeah. Right? I'm like, I don't want to – everybody quotes Tootsie. I'm not going to. It's so well-structured, and it's so well-done that it's in every screenwriting book, and this woman's like, I don't like it. And I thought, there's a reason she doesn't like it, and I wonder if it's getting too old and it's getting harder. You know, um, time puts a layer of dust on things. Right. Right? Um, the quality of film changes, the acting styles change, all these things change. The way right? people talk to each other. Yeah. Right. Even gestures yeah. right, change. People well, just... we were talking about Mary Tyler Moore. Yeah. And how some folks in the office were like, it's hard for me to watch that. She's, you know, the way she's treated at work. Right? right. And it's like, yeah, it was a different time period. Right. And so that stuff can be a barrier between you and, um, and the gold that you would find there if you could get past it. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes it helps if you know what you're looking for. Yeah. And so I think that people, you know, um, Spielberg talks about John Ford and how much he likes John Ford. If he talked more about why he liked John Ford. Oh, my Ford, God. It'd be so great. I'd love to have him explain that. That's what, You know what I mean? So yeah. the way Billy Wilder talks about Lubitsch, I want to hear why people are influenced by certain people. What is it that's so great about? Because, I, I mean, I'll listen. Right. Maybe yeah. not everybody will, but I think that's gold. Um, 
I remember when I first started reading comics and everybody talked about Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby was, I mean, he was still doing some stuff, but he was really not the hippest style when I started reading, right? Yeah. So I didn't get it for a while. It took me a while to get Jack Kirby. But I thought it would be interesting if people, instead of saying Jack Kirby's the greatest, if the best artists who were influenced by him, people I could identify with because their style was closer to, yep. you know, yeah. said, this is why Jack Kirby's great. Yeah, imagine if they took, I'm going to just take one drawing and I'm going to explain this. Yeah. It'd be amazing. It would be amazing. And I don't know why, you know, people don't do that. Like, I can't do it, but it'd be great if somebody did a book. It's like, this is why Jack Kirby's good. This is why so-and-so's good. Right. <laughs> right. And then yeah. broke it down. Yeah. All these different yep. artists. Just like Glenn. Yeah. Watch his eyes. Yeah. And then you watch his eyes and you go like, I would have never seen. When you said that Glenn said that, you told me that story. And I was like, I would have. I, I love Picasso. I got, right. you know, you know, whatever prints and stuff all over my like the house. And, you know, ever since college. Mm -hmm. Because feeling, the feeling that he could get out of a painting was big. And I told you for our honeymoon that we actually went to Malaga, Spain, where he was born. Um but I had never seen his eyes like that. Right. As soon as you said, well, you know what Glenn says, look at his eyes. I watched him. I was like, son of a bitch. Yep. Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. But I couldn't see it until you somebody pointed at it. Right. Right? And I'm sure Jack Kirby's the same way. And, yeah. You know, or Billy Wilder's the same way. Rod Serling's the same way. Like, so when you look at Billy, what's the thing that you would tell people, don't miss this? Don't miss that he always knows where he's going. That was on his list of things, tips, because he's got a list of yeah. tips, right? And that was know where you're going. And there's something about knowing where you're going that makes your work so clean and precise. It just It's an arrow, again, slicing through the air with no friction. There's no friction in a Billy Wilder thing. It's all pointed in the same direction, and it's all aiming at a single target. And there's a cleanness. You're, you know very quickly when you're watching a Billy Wilder film that you are in the hands of an expert. Mm. It doesn't take mm -hmm. you long to know that. You know, um, I'll, sometimes I'll read a script for somebody. I don't do it as much as I used to, but sometimes I'll read a script for somebody and they'll say, uh, uh, boy, you know, uh, it really kicks in at, uh, you know, page 20 or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, you know what? First, one thing, you told me, uh, you probably started 20 pages too early. <laughs> but when something's good, it's good fast. It's good quick. When you're sitting and you're watching E.T., how long does it take before you know it's yeah, good? Yeah, sure, yeah. When you're watching Jaws, how long does it take before you know it's yeah. good? Right? It takes, Raiders. Yeah. Whatever. It takes yeah. you no time at all. When something's good, it's good from the beginning. Yeah. And you know. Well, it's like a meal. Yeah. Well, I mean, I got sick through the first two courses, but I if you stick with it, you know, the diarrhea goes away. You're like, no, that's all right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's something about it when you're in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing. It's clear early on. Finding Nemo is one of those, right? Like right yeah. away, you're like, I'm watching something special here. You know it. And right now I can hear voices out there and people saying, give us an example from this year. Yeah, I wish I could. Yeah. Sure. I wish I could. The problem, you know, I don't like I told to told you my favorite movie of the year was Spider-Man. Sure. And I'm sure that I, that does, makes me uh, sound like, I don't know, not an intellectual or whatever. But I was like, <laughs> no, I mean, if everything I saw in the theater this year, Spider-Man moved me the most. Yeah. Um, I think um, 
you know, I don't like talking about contemporary stuff because people are emotionally attached to it. Right. Right. So they're like, but I love that. And so there's no talking to people like, and, but I love that by the way, is not an argument. Yeah. But people will say that like, I'll go, these are the things that are wrong with this, but I like it. Well, okay. Yeah. That is not an argument that doesn't work in court. Mm -hmm. Right. I just laid out a case. Yeah. And you said, but I like it. Nothing wrong with that, but it's not an argument. And so, because people have an emotional response, and that emotional response can come from anything, right? I like the colors. I, you yeah, know, yeah, the do I like the actors? Sure. Do I like that kind of special effect? People will say, but I like that kind of movie, right? That kind of thing. Like, well, that's personal. Yeah. But I'm, that's just different than being good. Right. And so, uh, so I tend not to talk about that stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't like that. No, I can understand that. Yeah. Because people can't even hear me, you yeah. know? And also, I. I never understand the question. People ask me a couple times a week, name something recently that you liked. A couple times a week, and I and I don't understand what recently has to do with any of it. Right. Like, I'm just talking about good work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I should turn it around. Name something from the yeah. 1930s that you, th- what's your favorite 1930s movie? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. You know? I'm t- I yeah. can tell you mine. Right. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, but it's not relevant. Right. That, like I, I think I said it before on the show, but film is a really interesting thing because it's the only art form that gets old. Hmm. Right. Music is just music. Right. Yeah. Beethoven's just Beethoven. Be- he's just it? Beethoven. Yeah. It's like, oh, you listen to old music. No, listen to Beethoven. Right. Billy Wilder's just Beethoven. Yeah. Right. It's Beethoven. It doesn't. It's not old, it's Beethoven. Right. It's not old, it's Shakespeare. Same thing. Talk about focus. Yeah. Talk about, you talked about Beethoven before. Focus. Yeah. Right. Complete focus. Billy Wilder, focus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But uh, so if people could get past the old, <laughs> you yeah. know, I guess comic books and film both get that. Let me, here's, here's a wild one, okay? And mm-hmm. um, let's end with this guy. Uh, and I don't think people might see this one coming because we've talked about a lot of, you know, people that I think maybe you would say are, are you know, heavy or really important mm-hmm. writers and filmmakers and whatever. And it's like, let's talk about Chuck Jones, because I know that we love Chuck Jones. Chuck Jones is great. Yeah, he's. So who was Chuck Jones? Chuck, uh, Chuck Jones was an animation director at uh, mostly at Warner Brothers. Most of his career, I say, or the significant part of his career yeah. at Warner Brothers. Um, uh, an amazing director. What would you know of the original Grinch? Yeah, would people would know, mm-hmm. which was not at Warner Brothers, but yeah, the original Grinch. Um, but Bugs Bunny, a lot of Bugs Bunnies, Roadrunners, yeah. his. Um, yeah, Pick yeah. of the Pew does not age well. I'm just gonna put that out there. Sure. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what What did you take away from Chuck Jones? Chuck Jones was precise. He was he was so precise that he could get a laugh out of nothing. Man, he could get a laugh out of a blink, a half of an expression. This guy, he, he, yeah, he it was precision. He also had a really good sense of character, um, and he he made observations about himself, um, like when he talks about. Mark that, Anthony and Cleopatra. Uh, oh, the you know, 
that one with Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, the the cat and the dog. Oh yeah, the yeah. Um, What's the name of that one? Uh, Feed the kitty. That it, it's so unbelievable when you watch that for what it is. Mm-hmm. Like not just watch it, put your phone away, watch it. Yeah, just actually watch it. It's amazing to watch. It's so it's impossible to make. Like what he could do with the amount of time and budget they had. Yeah. The termite terrorist folks. Like what he could do is kind of unbelievable. It is unbelievable. It's amazing what he could do. They were so um and you know, it's hard to talk about Chuck Jones without talking about Michael Maltese, who wrote a lot mm-hmm. of that stuff, and without talking about Maurice Noble, who was yeah. the layout guy who and designer who was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah. I, I would say that it's really Chuck Jones is Chuck Jones, but the, yeah. it's that. But it's funny because when you watch those old cartoons, you can feel the difference. Oh, there's a difference. And you go like, Chuck, as soon as you th- see the three of them in it, you're like, this is going to be insane. Right. And it always was. Yeah. They were amazing. Same you. within the Twilight Zone. When you go like, oh, Rod wrote it, you know it's going to be good. Yeah. There's some that are you know harder to follow and things like that. But as long as he's behind it, it's usually really good. Like when, when you had the three of them together, they were dynamite. Yeah, it's amazing what they did. They were good. So you would say focus? Um, yeah, he he was he was yeah. I would say precision, which is focus. I would mm-hmm. say he was very precise, um, and deliberate, right? So he and and um, Maurice Noble were very deliberate in their choices, and so like they would make these choices, like um, um, there's Wagner, right? So they do the Wagner thing. Um, um, the parody that they they do uh what's opera doc yeah right which uh they were able to spend a little time and a little bit more money on because um the roadrunner which was chuck jones they they could bang those out pretty easily so they so they they had a quota like you have to put out this many films a year or whatever so they would just bang out a bunch of roadrunners because they were relatively easy for them to do and then they could spend more time and money on what's opera doc which is why it's so beautifully done and the designs are beautiful, and but they would make these choices. Like Wagner's famous, you know, the saying, uh, it's not over to the fat lady sings, is from, you know, Wagner. And, uh, but Bugs Bunny was the lady, so they couldn't, he couldn't be overweight. So uh, there's a big horse, right? And so they're making these choices. Like we still have to make the choice yeah. somehow to have uh-huh. that represented on screen. And it's those kinds of choices. And it's hilarious to watch. So well structured too. Yeah, it's like re- yeah, yeah, it pays off. It really does. It's um, the colors are beautiful. It's really oh a beautiful, God. beautiful yeah. piece. Um, but we uh, tell the story just so people understand how smart these folks are. We tell the story about the witch. Sure. Well, so, um, so uh, Maurice Noble. Uh, so there was a company called UPA, and UPA uh, were a bunch of animators and designers who did. Uh, they did. Uh, they were very famous for a cartoon called Gerald McBoing Boing, and they did um, Mr. Magoo. And they, you know, very, there's a whole documentary on UPA if you want to find out about them. But um, Maurice Noble had a, in some ways, a similar style. But I heard something where he said he didn't, or maybe I read it. I can't remember. It was years ago, where he was not that big a fan of UPA. Now designers are like, but UPA is the greatest thing. But he said that he thought UPA just designed stuff that looked cool. And didn't design for the film itself. Yeah. So he was always very specific about his designs. And if mm-hmm. you look at his designs from cartoon to cartoon, oh, yeah. they're very specific. To, we even have the, three of them in the office. They don't look like the same person did them. Yeah. You know, they, they were consistent within the world of that cartoon, but that yep. cartoon had a certain world. So if you watch 
uh, any of the cartoons, the Warner Brothers cartoons with the witch, which Hazel, if you watch those um, and look at the backgrounds, because because it was the witch's house, the backgrounds make no sense. He was designing specifically for that for that story. So you'll see weird things like there'll be a couch, but it'll be floating in the yeah. background or there'll be a. There'll be a, a the sp- fires on the ground. Yeah, the fire will be on the ground, the fireplace or whatever on the ground. Like it'll, you know, it'll kind of bend, and yeah. or the picture frame. Like there's a picture hanging, and the wire goes up the wall and then up the ceiling. You know, he does all these things because it's the rich witch's world and there's magic and nothing makes any sense. Now you don't notice it. No, it and that I can attest to that. I remember you said that it was like, well, you know, I mean, look at the backgrounds, and I was like, what about them? I don't know how many times I'd seen those cartoons. Yeah. The same type of thing. Somebody points it out and you go, oh, my God. It's so obvious and it's so clean. I'd never noticed it. Yeah. And it's so well done. And you just it just gives you it really makes you take a step back and be like, man, alive. Talk about craft. Talk about everything was motivated. Yeah. Right. It's like, well, I mean, this witch, you know, nothing would make sense in her house. You know, she talked just like and then when you see it and the way he was able to pull it off again, going back to the time and money, they didn't have a ton of that. Right. It's not like they just got to do whatever they wanted. Right. Right. And then they like you said a minute ago, where they'd be like, oh, well, let's bang these ones out so that we can really push this one forward. And they cared so much about these little cartoons that most people thought they're going to run. That's it. Right. Yeah, they didn't know they were making classics. No. Right? I mean, there was really no But they approached everything as though it would be. Yeah. Yeah. They... Which reminds me, you know, that's August. Yeah. Don't make the best cartoon. Don't make a good enough cartoon to make the kids smile. <laughs> right. Make the best cartoon ever made. Yeah. That, I think that's what they were trying. They were always pushing themselves to do a better job. Going and... back, same thing. Going back to Glenn. Yeah. Yeah, push yourself. Um, and also... It's important to know that these things weren't noticed. They were felt. That's Mm. important because a lot of times people do things to be noticed, right? Maurice Noble was not trying to be noticed. So you watch those cartoons and you never noticed the couch was floating and the fire was on the ground, right? You never noticed any of that stuff because it wasn't there to be noticed. And trusting that you can do something um, that is that outrageous too, that the couch is floating and the fire's on the ground and all that stuff and that people won't notice trusting that you'll go with the feeling of something and the audience will go along with yeah. you is a big thing well that's that, going lo- back, that's what glenn was talking about with little mermaid yeah yeah i i've learned a lot from that like i will go to the emo- the emotional truth will beat everything yep right so i i do that all the time i'm like you know what i can be a little abstract here and nobody will know it's abstract yeah. Right. Because Glenn's drawing the feeling. Yep. Right. And that's why they shoot at Spielberg, which is crazy. Yeah. Right. You but, know, but he's going for the feeling. Yeah. And it works and it's great. And, yeah. You know. When it works, it's amazing. Oh, so, my God. you know, sometimes you fly too close to the sun. But sure. But but that's that's all right. That's I'll take that. Yeah. I'll take that over nothingness. <laughs> I will, too. Right. I will, too. Um, what would you. So you've had all these, you know, you have almost these. These kind of like um, virtual kind of mentors or teachers, people I you know, met, like yeah. Chuck Jones and people like that. And then you have, you know, folks like, you know, August. And would you have any tips on 
for instance, with August, you, you saw him at a from balcony. You walked down and you talked to him. Right. You got really lucky because he's such a nice guy. Right. But do you have what? Do you have any suggestions of you know how do other people find mentors? Like again, going back to Bruce at the very beginning, a thirteen year old. What'd you do? You picked up the phone. Right. Right. Um, any any sort of like tips or how to how to you know I don't know find a mentor or you know how to make the most of their time if you ask them questions or any of that kind of stuff. Well, um, sometimes people want mentors to do the work for them. And what I find is that they'll often meet you halfway. So sometimes people are like, you don't meet August Wilson having never written anything and say, hey, can you teach me about writing? <laughs> right? Because you're not serious uh-huh. yet. Yeah. Right? So get as good as you can get on your own. Learn everything you can learn. One of the reasons I impressed Bruce when I went there when I was 13 is I read incessantly about movies. I knew everything about movies that I could learn. I, I just absorbed anything I could. I watched every making of and behind the scenes thing. There was a show called That's Hollywood, all about behind the scenes. I never missed That's Hollywood. Um, anything I could get a hold of, I would watch. And this is before you could, you know, there was, yeah, yeah. you know, you just had to, it was on TV. You had to watch it then and or it would be gone and read books and anything. And this so, is when you would do audio tapes, right? Audio tape tele- television shows to learn how they, you know, um, were structured and all of that. So when I met Bruce, I knew some things. I came with some things. I think that mentors want to know that you're willing to do the work. Yeah. Right. And so they're not good people to meet when you're just getting started and have nothing. Uh, there's no reason to invest in that person. Right. For them. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it could be a whim. I was thinking about writing, but I don't know what like, nobody wants to, you know what I yeah. mean? Enthusiasm matters, right? So if you're actually enthusiastic, then you will have, in fact, Bruce said that to me today. He goes, enthusiasm is, makes a big difference. That's more mm. important than anything else. So I think if people see that, um, that matters. And part well, of what he did, that camera operator. Right. And that's what he was talking about. He said, mm. well, she had enthusiasm and that's the most important thing. I've seen that. Yeah. Enthusiasm and hard work gets you so far. Yeah. And so people will help you. Right? People will help you, but you have to be out there doing it. You can't be thinking about doing it, considering doing it. Yeah. Nobody's going to, why would they waste your time? Right. Right? Um, and then you're getting something that's coming too easily. Right? But if you've been struggling with something and you hit a wall and you meet that mentor then um, they're going to be willing to help you more times than not. Well, that's the old, uh, when the student is ready, the master appears. Yeah. That's it's funny how that works. It's totally true. And you know what? When you're not ready, that that master will do you no good at all. That mentor does you no good at all if you're not ready. Yeah. You have to be at a certain point. But Glenn told me. You have to have humility. That's one of the things I've heard from learned from all these folks that you've talked about. Yeah. Right? The humility to go, I watched this Billy Wilder movie. I watched Sunset Boulevard. I didn't like it. What didn't I see? Not, ah, that guy, you know, what? like, what did I not see? Yeah, I find that a lot. Like, people say, I saw that thing, I didn't like it. Yeah. You, you, don't, you don't know enough to dismiss it yet. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't look at it through your eyes. Try to see it through my eyes. If you, if you think I have something to teach you, 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, if you don't, you think, ah, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. Then don't listen to a word I say. But if I have something to teach you and you think so, then you have to, You ha that's what I always did. If somebody I admired said they liked something. Yeah. I wouldn't look at it through my eyes. I try and see it through their eyes. Yeah. What do they like about this? Yeah. What am I missing here? Yep. And not enough people do that. They think they're right. And that stops them from learning. Instead of going, what if I'm wrong here? Well, and there's something when you go like, um, uh, I don't really like Jack Kirby stuff. It's too simple. I like Alan Moore stuff. It's like, well, you know who Alan Moore likes, right? Yeah. You're right. You know yeah. what I'm saying? It's yeah. like, there's, you, it's worth looking at. Yeah. Maybe I could take another look at. Right. Yeah. Something, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but I was going to say, Glenn said something to me once. He said that um, Frank and Ollie would say to him, um, they'd be teaching him and they'd go, ah, Glenn, we have so much to teach you, but you're not ready yet. They wanted to show him things, but they knew he wasn't ready yet. And he would be like, oh, I'll write it down and I'll read it later. Like he was very excited about yeah. it. But, but that's an important thing that huh. you are not always ready. Yeah. You're not always ready. So sometimes you're not far enough along for that mentor to make any difference in your life. Like, so you don't want to meet people too early hmm. in your, in your development. If you meet them right. too early, there's just, you're just too far apart. Right. Um, and that's good to know. You yeah, know? totally. It's a good thing to know. Um, oh, maybe they're talking over my head or I don't understand it yet. Like you should know that about yourself because we all have to go through that where it's like, Oh, I don't understand what that person's talking about. Like, I remember learning about visual communication and I remember somebody said something that crystallized it for me. And then I, I realized, Oh, I don't know anything about this. And, and, uh, that just, it was like a clear slate. Like, Oh, I got to learn all about this now. Hmm. I see. I don't know. I, I only knew cool shots. Right. Right. Yeah. And then, and then this person, it was a real, some guy came to our school. He was like a graphic designer and uh, was talking to us, and I was interested in film and all that stuff, and I was lucky enough that my brain connected things, right, like dyslexics do. So, like, graphic design, that has something to do with, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, something yeah. to do with film. I can yeah, figure that. yeah. And so I, uh, I think it was after school or something. I can't remember, but this guy came and spoke. And this must have been 1979. And uh, I was a kid. And he goes, uh, he was talking about the movie The Black Stallion. And he was talking about the visual storytelling in that movie. And he said, there's a scene in it. And it's actually a really uh, well done scene, sequence. And, and uh, they're tracing this horse. They're, 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 they're trying to get this horse to qualify for some big race. And they're trying to say this horse is really fast. And so they're trying to get this big muckety-muck to come see this horse run. And uh, so uh, this car pulls up. And that's the big muckety muck. And it's nighttime. It's dark. You can only see, like, the only part of the track you can see is where the headlights illuminate the track. So you can see the horse and you can see, but everything else is darkness. And so um, they know the guy's there. So they go, okay, we'll let the horse go. And so they, you know, they start the horse running and they hit the stopwatch or the, you're inside. It starts to rain, by the way. Also, at that moment, it's also raining. It starts to rain. And the guy inside, I think it's the guy inside, starts a stopwatch when the horse starts running. And the horse goes into the darkness. So the horse is just in the darkness. You don't know where it is in the track, right? Because <laughs> it's just dark. Only this little piece is illuminated. And you keep cutting back to the watch. Tick, 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 
so smart. And people looking and work, but you never see the face of the dude, the muckety muck. Yeah. You only see the stopwatch and this. And so then the horse comes around, he hits the thing. Now, a bad storyteller thinks that that time, that timer matters, but it doesn't. I don't know how fast horses run. Yeah. Sure. I don't know what a good time is, right? <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know what the guy expects or doesn't expect or whatever. I don't know, right? So that doesn't mean anything. Here's what happens. The guy stops the stopwatch. Remember, it's raining outside. Yeah. This guy opens the door to his car. Yeah. He's wearing an all-white suit. I think he even has white shoes. Puts his feet in the mud. And gets his feet all muddy and his suit all muddy. And yeah. then, then you see his face and he's like, oh, my God. And the guy was talking about how good that was. And I was like, I don't know anything about this. And it's like, I got to figure out visual storytelling. To put him in a white suit, to put him in so the rain. Good, to put him man. In the mud. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Get yeah. out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but you understand that the Black Stallion's a kid's movie, Brian. I'm surprised, <laughs> I'm surprised you took something from that. <laughs> That movie's so beautifully shot. God. And, and that's insane. Yeah. Try writing that shit. <laughs> the funny thing is explaining it, you're like, oh man, I can see it. That's so good. It's like, try sitting down and writing that. You know who wrote it? Who? Melissa Matheson, who wrote E.T. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 All right. Well, I guess that does it for us. <laughs> Melissa Matheson was not a joke. No kidding. Yeah. She was great. Um, I really wanted to meet her. She was uh, she was kind of a I really wanted to meet her. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's so good. I read E.T. so many times. I read that script so many times. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was I was very upset when she died. Um, But yeah, she was amazing. But yeah, that, so I was like, okay, I gotta, like, it was like, it was great to hear that from that guy because it was like, it clean, like, it was a clean slate. I was like, I gotta yeah. learn about this. I don't know anything about it. All I knew was cool shots. That's all I knew. Yeah. This is from this angle. And Which this, means oh, look you don't this. know anything. Yeah. I know that feeling exactly. Oh, but you could do this, that, and the other thing. And you're like, yeah, but who cares what you can do? Right. What should you do? Yeah. What needs to happen? Yeah. Um, it's a whole different thing. And the funny thing is it's actually um, really scary at the beginning when you have to throw out all your old bag of tricks. Yeah. You know, and start to go like, I can't just, I can't bullshit my way through this anymore. It's too hard. Well, you know, the, the sound designer, which Frank, I think it was Frank. There's a sound designer, and I'm blanking on his name, but he did all the sounds in Raging Bull. Mm. And the sounds in Raging Bull are amazing. Mm-hmm. People don't know. This talk about going for emotional, the emotional versus the logical, right? Yeah. So there are things, the sound design in Raging Bull is off the charts. And there are sounds that don't make sense logically that make perfect sense emotionally so there's you know it's boxing movie and there's there's like slow motion of the guy like moving in the ring and there'll be the sounds of like wild animals like elephants and tigers and things right and it feels right but it has nothing to do with that what's happening in the scene and the guy you don't notice it you don't notice it at all but you feel it but you feel it and so the guy made a special way to make the there's flash bulbs going off and he made this very special sound these pops right and he does these beautiful i mean these beautiful sound work and beautiful things and then he he destroys all of them after every movie so that he doesn't use the same trick twice so crazy isn't that crazy but that's how you get good that's how you get good he destroys them there's that's glenn that's right you know it's like 
Yeah. I don't like uh, hands and feet scare me. I guess what I'm doing next is hands and feet. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking about this stuff, Brian. I've yeah, just thanks. I've heard so many of these stories from about all these people that either you met or you haven't. And there's usually these really fantastic little pieces that I, I hold on to. And so it's been really valuable for me. And I hope that this has been valuable for the folks that are listening. Um, yeah. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for watching. You are a storyteller. If you have any questions or there's a storytelling topic you want us to cover, leave a comment below or email us at hello at believeagency.com.